Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal-making expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff. Are live. All right. Hey, welcome. This is Oren Claff, and you are on the Deal Maker Show. Today, I am lucky. I'm pleased. I'm actually kind of sad or terrified. I have Tony Hughes on from uh, the the you know the co-author of Tech Powered Sales and the author of Combo Prospecting. And I did a little bit of a whoa, little bit of a pre-call with Tony, and he kind of is scaring me with how much more he knows about this stuff than I do. So I might actually do something I rarely ever do on this show, which is no, not take my clothes off. I do. I, I, I do that more often than I actually listen, but Tony, welcome to the show. I'm actually interested in listening to what you have to say. And I know other people are as well. So welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Oren. I am super excited about the conversation. I've been a huge fan of your books, pitch anything and flip the script. I uh, watched a ton of your stuff online, and uh, you and I are very aligned. Yeah, well, well, good. I mean, uh, you're aligned with the books, you know, but that was stuff I did, you know, a year, two years ago. You don't know what I'm doing now. I, I was at, I was speaking at a sales conference yesterday for a, a SaaS company, fairly large SaaS company. You know, we were talking about closing, and I, I sort of felt like their close needs to be, hey, hey, listen, I'm not going to work harder on your company than you will. You have this problem. We don't. Okay. I'm happy to leave here. If you guys can't figure out what you really want and go work with somebody and fix this problem, you have this problem as bad as it's going to get, right? I, I, we, we rarely see this problem in, in, in such a bad form. I'll leave here and you guys keep your problem. If you want to go work with Acme SAS company, uh, you know, there's a bunch of kids surfing on couches in Bali, go ahead. Right. But let's figure out quickly what we're going to do together. So I think that's sort of a better close than the one they were using. But what, what, and and you would have, you know, three, four years ago, that wouldn't have been appropriate or worked. But I think the the buyers have so much power today that you've got to escalate in power, in status, in control, in effort, in energy, in, in, in um, equivalency. You know, we're not the lowly salesperson you're not the buyer with the money and the contract and the status and the capability and the things we need, right? I think the roles have reversed. I can get, I can, oh, by the way, I said I was going to listen, but let, let, let me finish. And then, but, but I can go get, I can go get, uh, you know, from Justin, your partner, or Daniel, my partner, a thousand leads, 2,000 leads, 5,000 leads, right? Leads I can get. It's the closing of big account sales real deals that has sort of become a last a lost art because you can buy leads so what what, what you know what are you seeing today that has changed in the deals that really matter everybody understands you can get leads you can throw a you can throw a script against the leads you every blind hog can find a truffle every once in a while you can convert at 1.8% against bought leads and see what falls out of that but what is the lost art of closing deals in, in your mind? What's changed? Well, Lauren, I, I work with big enterprises. My, my clients are companies like Salesforce, SAP, Adobe, 
Uh, I work a lot in the SaaS and tech startup world as well on advisory boards, helping people raise capital, same kind of circles that you move in. Um, I'm going to say something really controversial. Most people that think their problem is closing are actually wrong. Their problem is opening. Because yeah. if you don't open the right way, you never get to close. But when so, you say the right way, when you say yes. the right way, because I, I feel like, what does that mean? What are the, What do you have to create? When you open the right way, whatever that is, what yeah. emotion, what situation, what stakes, what premise, what belief system do you have to create that allows you to close easily? Well, let's get back to fundamentals. I, I believe that selling is first and foremost about making a positive difference in the life of the customer personally and professionally. And if you don't believe that as a seller or as an entrepreneur, uh, then you're automatically doing the wrong thing right out of the gate. Uh, and the other thing is when we engage with people, we need to talk the language of leaders, which is dollars, percentages, outcomes. So we need to turn up. We need, I, I use this phrase, when we spring from the bushes, you know, we, we leap out and surprise somebody that wasn't expecting to have any interaction with us on the phone, maybe an email and social, you know, even face-to-face even -face post-COVID. Um, but the thing is when we talk to them, we need a worthwhile point of view in their mind about why this conversation matters. So we need to personalize and show that we're relevant. So it's really important to warm the conversation up, not with artificial fake rapport building and friending, but by showing them we've done our research. And then we simply say, hey, look, the reason I wanted to talk is I've got some ideas on how I think you could, and then say what benefit A is. And then, and, and in a way that, and talk about a second benefit, benefit B, and ask them a great insightful question. So if we open in a way that gets them focused on their business case for change, the reason why they should work with us, then we get them focused on creating the funding and developing the sense of urgency. There's almost never a mythical compelling event. What we really need is a compelling reason, a strong business case. And what most sellers and entrepreneurs do, I especially see this with startups, is they manage to create interest. The person's interested. They want to look at look at it. They want to demo. They want to talk about it. They want a second meeting, a third meeting, but they never buy. And the reason they never buy is because the, the business entrepreneur or the seller never anchored the conversation in the commercial value of change. So don't confuse interest because interest can often just waste a huge amount of time and resources and never go anywhere. Um, so we need to engage as if we're a peer and if we open where we create the focus on their business case, we avoid a whole lot of objections because if we talk about us and what we do, the other person naturally starts to compare us with competition and ask about price. We, we don't want that conversation. Wait, let's wait, talk on, about let's, the let's, business case for change. Let's, I, I totally agree. Let's unpack it a little bit. And so like, well, what's, what's the worst possible opening? Like, let me frame a scenario. All right. The, uh, we've, we've got some leads. We sent out an email to a, a $50 million SaaS company. We sell a, uh, you know, a, a $50,000 a year accounting SaaS product, right? And we have the CFO, the COO, and the VP of finance come to a call and they have a problem that our SaaS software solves. They're, they're interested they're hooked by the email. They looked at our website. The website is credible. They typed us in on LinkedIn. Um, we we look like real dudes on LinkedIn and Microsoft is our customers. And, and they go, great, we'll take a call with you. They book some time. We get on a Zoom. 
What's the worst possible way to start that call? The worst way to start the call is to make it all about us. We, we, we need to make it all about them and their business case for change. I, when I work with sellers, I say, look, as soon as you can in the conversation, if, if a lead comes to you, they'll be, the customer or the prospect will be in the mode of asking their 99 questions or sending you their spreadsheet with their 1,343 questions. You've got to tick the boxes and provide a price. As soon as you can, you need to say, hey, do you mind if I ask? What's happening inside the organization that's caused you to want to look at this? Not look at us, but look at this, right? So what, what, what's, what's happened internally that's caused you to want to look at this? Next question. If you were to invest in, in changing this with us or anybody else, what improved results are you expecting, both for the organization and for you and your role? Now, what these two questions do is they, they try to uncover the root cause or trigger event that's gone on, that's created the interest. It starts to uncover and get them thinking about their business case rather than, than comparing us with competition. And then the third question that we can ask that flows on from this quite logically is, hey, hey where do you see the risks? Where, where do you see the risks of getting this implemented successfully? And the thing we know from all of the research is that we become the emotional favorite the one that they want to work with, if we're the ones that that educate them and provide some insights, uh, get them to start to think about, you know, other things they could be doing or unintended consequences that they maybe had not considered, uh, how they can ensure adoption, how they can gather consensus in the organization. You know, one of the worst things that happens with buyers is they have a problem, they go to market, and then they buy something and try and solve the problem in a way where it's under supported at the executive level and underfunded. Hey, so I, I don't, yeah. I don't appreciate you describing my company like that, Tony. Okay. That's, that's, um, that's what we do. We go to market under research, we buy anything, we <laughs> install it and, uh, and then we go find another one that works a little bit better. But, but I think, I think something that you mentioned is, to me, one of the biggest failings of the salespeople or business development officers or, uh, you know, origination specialists, whatever you call yourself today, is that unless you can add some insight to that buyer's knowledge of his business, right, they're, if they feel like they're teaching you about their industry, they're always going to be doubtful about the impact you can have in their business. So, uh, uh, and, and I, I learned this in the uh, various forays I had in the automotive industry with either SaaS software or advertising agencies, but the automotive business is very tough. Their margins are low yeah. and it's run by salespeople. It's not run by engineers. Maybe that'll change in the next 10 years, but they're super savvy. They're hard to sell against. They're moving really fast. They know how to sell. And when you're a salesperson, they recognize you and they feel like they have your numbers. And I found the only way to sell into the automotive industry is if you can teach them or provide some insight about their business, whether it's an automotive dealership you know, or, or a manufacturer, if you can provide them something, wow, I didn't know that, some real insight about their business or news that they didn't know, boom, they love you. That in, in that business, that was sort of the canary in the coal mine for that technique. Excuse me. Um, 
is when when you 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 can dig so deep into somebody's business, you can uncover something that's meaningful to them that they can go use after that call and be like, then you have them. They believe in you. They they're interested in trusting you. They know you speak a common language. And now there's, there's way more trust than you'll ever get than talking about parasailing, jet skiing, scuba diving, weather, the Phoenix suns, uh, you know, and, 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 and all that kind of stuff that people believe that, you know, they're building trust and recognition and really nothing is happening. That's what I want to talk a little bit more about all this rapport stuff. Cause I know you're good at, but yeah, the, this thing that you said that triggered me is, is insight when you can deliver a real meaningful insight to somebody about their business. Then all these questions go away about, do you, do you understand what we do? Yeah. And, and the challenge is how do we move from insight just being a cliche to actually being meaningful? And that's why it's really important for all sellers and business people that they really think about their ideal customer profile because not everyone's a prospect and then the buyer personas they engage with and then for all of our existing customers we want to go and know those killer case studies that we can talk about now we need to be careful because if you called up pepsi and said hey we work with coca-cola and i'd love to come and share some insights with you about what they're doing they, they may right. agree to do a zoom call with you but they'll never let you set foot on the premises right because you're an unethical person that betrays trade secrets from one company to their competition. So we need to be careful. But what we know is this, buyers are not interested in educating sellers so the seller can pitch to them. They expect us to have done our homework and to turn up with a point of view. So if we say, hey, look, I'm really happy to share with you what we're seeing other CFOs do, you know, within, within the retail sector at the moment to try and solve this problem, when can we find time? The reason for meeting is not to get a pitch about a product or a vendor solution. Uh, the well, reason well, to meet is to gain some insights. I'm even more aggressive about it than that, right? I will say, uh, for example, you know, hey, you are, uh, you know, today I'm trying to think of a problem that people have. Right. So, so today you're running cybersecurity on your platform, 13 websites, four petabytes of data annually, um, you know, across 250 users. That's cute. I can remember the first day that we did that. It was 2002. We were so happy. It was a joyful moment. <laughs> and we, uh, we, you know, but, but since then, you know, we've grown a little bit. Four petabytes of data. We'll review four petabytes of data every 15 minutes. We manage... 2,500 websites, 2,505, but you know, who, who's counting, you know, across 27 trillion lines of code. And we'll see 17 to 25 cyber attacks every two hours. So uh, the, what we're doing is we're doing it at scale. The things that we're seeing at the leading edge of our business, right? Uh, you're not going to see what we saw three years ago for another five years. What we want to share with you is what's happening at the real front lines. I know like what you're doing feels like the front lines and it's very exciting and four petabytes of data. And so, so I try and, you know, kind of minimize what they're doing in terms of scale. What we'd like to do is let you know what you're going to see when you actually get big. Your pro forma 
actually happens. Your plans actually happen. The things you say your companies are going to buy and the growth you're going to have actually happens. And, and in two years, you're the big bear that shits in the woods, as you say you'll be. What we want to do is share with you what the world will really look like when you get there and give you advanced view. If we had had that advanced view, we'd be 10 times larger ourselves. So I, I try and even be more aggressive about where that insight comes from, why we have it. And I think, you know, maybe the difference is, and not everybody likes this, but I do try and frame them down. It's hard to frame yourself up, or I feel like it's harder to frame yourself up than how people already see you because you're telling people what to think. But you do need a gap, right? Gap selling. Who's the guy who wrote Cap Selling? I forget his name. Um, yeah, but it's a good book. It's a good <laughs> book. What is it, guys? He, has, he only has one name, right? Uh, I haven't talked to him. He'd be an interesting guy to talk to. But anyway, uh, but there has to be a gap to sell into. It's hard to elevate yourself because you're telling people that you're good. So, so we try and you know elevate a little bit with this insight. But I do try and reframe them. Uh, at, you know, Horton hears a who. Have you ever read that? Or a, you know, a better, a better book is a King Rat. Did you read James Clavell's? No, no. So. Well, I mean, it was written 45 or 65 years ago or whatever. Um, is James Clavell just a, a still alive? We need a – Daniel, we need a researcher. Can't remember all this stuff. But anyway, so King Rat, I'm going to give away the plot. Like if you haven't read it by now, like too bad. I'm going to spoil it. So, so what happens is this tale of these prisoners uh, in World War One or Two, and I think World War Two, and they, they have this social architecture that's fascinating and, and, um, and really – uh, it, it, as you would have in normal society, this whole built-out architecture of of social, um, you know, hierarchies within the prison. But finally, when the uh, uh, soldiers emancipate them and you know and and um, uh, you know uh, release them from the prison, they're they they're just scrabbling for bears. They're barely alive. But the whole book paints like they have this complex. Um, you know, architecture. So, so what I try and do, oh, sorry, Warren, how are we in a sales conversation? Well, I, I, <laughs> I try and paint the buyer as being in a different world from where he thinks he is sort of right. Horton, here's a who, or yeah. rat They're They're, they're just a, you know, just a rat in a cage really. Right. And the real world is outside of them. And open their eyes to like you know what's what's really possible. Like they've just arrived in Hollywood as a you know they, they come from, they're they're really just a bit actor from a uh, uh, you know community college theater in Kansas. Not to be mean to you know Sioux Falls, Kansas, or whatever it is. Uh, and and now they're now they're in Hollywood and they oh I give you a better example and not to use sports metaphors but um, when kids move from college football to the NFL. They think it's just like a more professional college football and you get paid. They oh, hit fucking hard as hell in the NFL. Every single college kid is like, God damn, they hit fucking hard up here, right? It's a totally different game. And that's why I try and show them is like, if you guys really want to go where you want to go, the hits are harder. It's a different world, right? You, we, We're trying to help you move from small ball to big ball, right? Hey, little Tony, you're off. You're off the field. Big Tony is in, right? Yeah. So, so um, that that to me, you know, using that insight 
and helping them understand that there's a bigger game to be played than what they're in. And they're actually just sort of messing around in the scraps. I find creates a gap and some, some, uh, cognitive dissonance or just some disruption, you know, change in this, in the status quo, because ultimately if they believe that they're doing a pretty good job, the status quo can hold, uh, they can continue spending a little bit of money using some consultants here and there and not have to make any significant investment or change. It's just really hard to sell into that environment. So, so Aaron, you said a minute ago you wondered wh- where you were going, right? But what you were doing was you were telling stories, and that and that's what every seller needs to do. They they need to tell stories. But the mistake most sellers make is they tell stories in ways that makes them the seller, the hero of the story. We need to make the customer the hero of the story. And what what you just described is reframing. We're really helping to to lift the eyes of our customer out of the gutter and actually to the horizon, right? Get them to imagine what that brighter future could be but, like. But people get so confused by this idea of story. Like what, what is a, so the, you know, they get confused by story. So we call it a narrative. They get confused by narrative. So we call it a narrative arc. They get confused by narrative arc. So we call it a, you know, um, a, a, a pitch architecture. They get confused by pitch architecture. So we're just like, fuck it. Just here's the pitch deck, right? On page one, say these things. Like, why? What are you motivated by? What's your mission? What's your vision? What's your, but what to you is really a story that buyers will just be pulled in by, interested in, like they're not, they're not giving you the time or willing to pay attention. They don't know any better. They're just listening to what it is you have to say, because what, what is in your mind, uh, I'm, I'm interested. I'm not giving you the answer. I'm asking for, yeah. you know, the answer. What's a, what's a story made out of? Well, let, let me just maybe preempt that. The first thing is, um, when we approach someone that does not yet know us, right, this whole concept of, of creating opportunity pipeline, they're not interested in our stories. They're not interested in us. They're just interested in themselves. So we need to personalize the conversation by showing we've done research, a common connection suggested we speak, We've noticed a trigger event that's occurred in their world or an attribute about their business. And then we have a point of view about how they can drive improved results in their role. As we go deeper, we want to use stories to to emotionally anchor the fact that this is all believable. And we want to tell stories where we make our other customers the heroes of the story rather than than ourselves and relate it to that person's world. But do you have an example of that? Because I feel like I feel yeah. like if we if we if I tell people to do that they're going to uh, fly the plane into the side of a mountain. Um, yeah. Yes. So, so I won't bore everybody, but I've, but, but, but I've got frameworks for all of this. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll actually tell you a story. When, when the GFC hit in March last year, one of my biggest clients globally is a, is a corporation called Flight Center Travel Group. They operate in North America, Europe, Asia, all over the world. I do their training around the globe. Their executive team called me, and they've got about seven business-to-business brands that they work with. They called me and said, hey, our sellers and account managers are universally encountering the same problem. They're calling up customers or prospects and the prospects and customers are saying, look, I don't know why you're even calling. None of my staff are traveling. There's no point meeting. Phone me back when the airlines are back in the air. And I said, we need to make that excuse the very reason why they should meet. And this is the narrative that we created. 
they then they then changed and called their prospects and they said, hey, with none of your staff traveling right now. So right out of the gate, they killed an objection. They prevented an objection coming up. No one's going to raise that objection if you're acknowledging it straight away. Yeah. With none of your staff traveling right now, um, I think this is the ideal opportunity, time for you to drive 8 to 12% of cost out of what will return to being the third to fifth biggest expense line on your P&L. When was the last time you reviewed your travel policy and the way you, you run it as a process, right? So you're creating the focus on the business case. They've been quietly switching competitor clients over to them in the last 15 months. So as the transacting comes back, it's with them. And then what they would also have is they would have great stories to tell. They'd say, hey, another, and then they talk about another client in the same industry as that customer or prospect, another CFO in a client we've been working with was able to achieve this. You know, when, when I, I can't promise that you'd get the same results, but that's why we need to get together. When can we make time? So they use the stories to provide the evidence and proof and they lead with a point of view that causes the person to lean into the conversation. Yeah, I like it. Uh, that's and and what you said just triggered a story that I have. I'll just share it with you. Might be bad, but go for it. <laughs> it's, it's at the top of my head. So uh, a woman comes in here and she is running the small company. It's really cool. It is a Uber for women with only women drivers. Small company. Their goal is not to take over the world. Right. And she has a fantastic pitch and she has a, a story herself of like, uh, you know, she was in a scary Uber ride. I won't get into it, you know, and, and she just realized like this is not safe, uh, you know, in the city she was in and the ride she took and everything like that. She's like, oh, you know, I should just have women drivers for women only. And so they started the company and they got some money in and she had a whole pitch. Right. And she gave me the pitch and I just sat there nodding and it was I never broke in. Uh, because she she was going slide to slide to slide dutifully and it was filling in the blanks. It was very interesting. And I get to the end of the pitch and I go, you know, it's funny. Um, this is super interesting, but like, is it even legal? And she goes to me, everyone asks that. I go, well, God damn it. Why not just open it up and say, by the way, I want to let you know we're doing something real excited. And yes, it is legal. Why don't you even say that before you right. even say what it is if you always get jammed up on that? And so I go, well, how long does it take you to answer this question after you've been through all that? So my answer is legal. Well, you know, I normally in five or six minutes. I go, five or six minutes? Are you fucking kidding me? You know what I could do with five minutes in front of an investor? That's, that's your $5 million. Because, so, Oren, because Oren, the reality is if you don't deal with the elephant in the room, the person isn't listening to you properly because they're distracted all of the way through. They're wondering this. You want to remove I, I them. That. I agree. I mean, yeah. first of all, if you're listening to this podcast, um, somehow find some way to block everything I'm saying and just write down what Tony's saying. All right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's my podcast. I have to act like I have can, something to add here, but Everything Tony has said is triggering. Why am I yelling at you? I don't need to yell at you. Calm down. <laughs> it's because it, it, it's, it's you're triggering in me these, these huge pain points of companies that I've worked with that are having these problems, developing insight, uh, um, you know, not, uh, um, not having stories, um, 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 getting to the objections way at the end. And then the end of the meeting, when everybody's tired, everybody wants to go home. Nobody wants to you know, hear you anymore. Now you're trying to overcome their objections and do a call to action. So I think you're, you're hitting every, you know, pain point 
right on the head. And by the way, these are the things. If you need more leads, you know, email Tony, email us, uh, Tony's partner, Daniel, Justin and Daniel will get like, they'll just walk up to the, the, like the water thing at the side of your house and just turn it on and leads will come pouring. You'll be, you know what you'll be doing? You'll be cleaning your car with leads. Like, Hey man, what are you doing? I'm, I'm washing my car. Well, what is that coming out of the hose? Leads. Well, don't you need those? No, Justin and Tony and uh, Daniel are just got me so many leads. I don't even need these. I'm just scrubbing my car with them. So, so leads is not the problem. The things that Tony is saying, like these are so elemental. And so, I, I, you know, I, I want to go back to what you just said um, because I want, damn it, we don't have any way to like flash it up on the screen, but review us through your last statement. Um, well, the, 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 the most important thing is we have to do our pre-search before we run outreach to anybody because they expect us to know them. Uh, they're not interested in educating us. Wow. So the way we warm the call up uh, is by playing things back to them to show that we've done our research. Uh, we need to show that we're relevant to them. But super quickly, we need a worthwhile point of view about how they can drive improved results in their role. We need to be able to back it up with, with some true stories and have some great questions to ask. And the way we open is what determines the probability of closing. And when we think about qualifying an opportunity, just remember that no prospect or potential buyer likes to feel like they're being qualified by a seller. But what they are okay with is exploring whether it makes sense to invest time together. And the, the degree to which a deal or an opportunity is really qualified, in my mind, is the degree to which they, the other side, is sharing insider information with us and access to other people that form consensus for the decision. So if, if that's not going on, if you're just doing all of the pitching and telling and you're sending things to them, it's all one way, then I think we're in deep trouble. And if, yeah. we, if we open in a way that anchors the business case and the commercial value, and then we have insights about how they can implement successfully and manage their risks, the way we sell makes us the emotional favorite. And even if there's others that kind of do what we do, they go, hey, I want to deal with Aaron because he took the time to understand my business. He knows what we're trying to achieve. He's educated me about other opportunities and risks that we're going to manage together. Uh, it, it's not about the tech or the features or functions. You know, th this guy is the lowest risk for us because he truly understands us. Well, I think that's right. I mean, we can get into really technical stuff as you're touching. Uh, you know, lowest risk is really the other side of certainty. And what we're seeking yeah. to create is certainty throughout this, but I, I think I have a, a, like a narrative or a narrative arc or a story or a soundbite or whatever on this. Like if you really want to know what this feels like to be on the shitty side of uh, somebody selling you, it is when you call your insurance company um, or your bank, or, you know, there's something wrong with the payment, uh, you know, on a, le a lease equipment or a vehicle, right? And somebody answers the phone and they have a, you know, 92% sounding American accent. Like, oh, hey, thank you very call. I'll be your uh, customer service administrator for today. I'm very excited to help you out. Um, hey, Mr. Claff, I understand that you've been trying to get this payment through, you know, on your leased equipment. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, we haven't been able to get the payment from Bank of America. I'll definitely help you out with that today. Like, great. Oh my gosh, like all the one, two, three, press three for that and, and, and calling the number. Finally, I'm here with somebody that to uh, who's going to help me, right? And they go, can I just verify your information? And then you go through all this information verification. And then they go, um, they go, so what seems to be the problem? So, well, I, I've been trying to pay you guys, but every time I click pay, it says 
that the payment's accepted, but then I get an email from you saying I haven't paid and I'm getting pissed off because I'm happy to pay, but you're just not taking my money. And then they go, so let me understand. What you're saying is that you're trying to pay, but you're not unable to pay. I mean, are you fucking deaf? I mean, I'm sorry, ma'am. Like, do you have a manager in America? Because yes, that's what I have been saying. And so the frustration of being patronized the frustration of going through this whole process and believing there's a thing like believing that you are in an actual process where somebody understands you and, uh, and, and then all of a sudden you realize they're asking questions that are just fundamental disconnects. Like, yeah. Hey, you can find this out on LinkedIn. You know where else you can find this out on our website? You know where else you can find this out? If you type in, O on Google, it will auto-complete my name. That's where else you can get this information. And then you're like, you're just, you're just out. So, so these, these signals, and I'll give you a real world example of this. I know I'm, I'm, I'm uh, hypothecating, but my partner, I'm not going to mention his name, Jack. That, hopefully, okay. uh, hey, Dan, can we beep that out? Um, but my, my, so I'll work with a client for two or three phone calls, right? And professionally, calmly, mathematically using sales calculus and business calculus, bring them to a point where they want us, believe it or not, to, to on their behalf, go raise $30 million of capital for their business based on the year over year growth that they're having, you know, the quarterly, the results, they feel like they can use some additional capital. Their IRR is exceeding 18%, which is, you know, 5% higher than the industry average. And as they're planning to move towards an IPO, they feel like they should have another $25 million on the balance sheet, even though they don't have a specific use of funds, whatever. They want us to go raise the money, right? And so then I'll call in Jack, who does a lot of our, our capital raising, not to throw him under the bus, Right. And then he'll come on the call. This is the third call where I've I've done everything possible to share with them, like provided insight, let them know that we're high status. We're not going to work on their problem harder than they will. We know people in common. We've just done all those things that you and I have been talking about and, and, and 50 things that we haven't talked about yet. Right. And then Jack will get on the phone and he'll go. Um, yeah. So why don't you give me a little background on your company? on the third call, right? And it's just lobbing a hand grenade into the deal. And usually it's irrecoverable. Yeah. So now we have a conversation. It's like, don't come on the call, the third call, and and ask them what their company does, right? Because it it's, does everything that Tony is telling yeah. us not to do. And actually, I, I, I mean... This is, you know, for you to share your stuff, but I just want to add, add a, one comment is like the faster and the more technical, as I wrote in Flip the Script, you can feed back to them what That's they right. do. So it doesn't feel like you're thinking hard or you're not self-congratulatory that you've done yeah. the research about them. Right. So you're like, oh, yeah, you're another one of those, um, you know, sell side SaaS companies with accounting plugins with the IRS and reduced cost by 25 percent, growing 50 percent year over year. And you've been in Fords and Inc., you know, three times and you're looking to, um, you know, move a little bit faster by having better account sales uh, and increasing, you know, decreasing sales costs by what, three, seven percent and uh, making your company sort of 
because of the competitive nature of hiring salespeople, making it one of the most competitive places to work and, and increasing your average sales size. You can pay salespeople, you know, sort of north of 250K OTE. Is that like, you know, so I think that's a good starting point. And they're like, holy shit. You know me. You know me. You know I'm me. Right? It's, yeah. it's, and it's not just you know me. It's that I feel like we we have a common let you speak the language of our industry. So when I hear you, Tony, say uh, it's it's about them, not about us, I also translate that into speak in their language. Exactly. Two people. Here, here's here's my goal, and then I'll, I'll I'm taking up so much of your time, but I just want to finish. No, this is great. My goal. My goal is this, is that anybody won't buy from me. I, I hit them with this microphone Daniel gave me. It weighs like 60 pounds. No, um, <laughs> my goal is that I talk to them the way they talk to each. I talk to them in the language, the way they talk to each other on Monday morning at 8 o'clock when there's an emergency. The website went down. The trucks didn't show up. They're not looking to develop rapport and trust and talk about the weather and who won the Phoenix Suns game and how the weekend was. And, you know, they're just going, um, uh, you know, the, hey, the website, uh, you know, received a denial of service attack. It looks like, you know, Google has us down. They're telling us it's 58 minutes to, um, you know, lift the website back on. And then we're only going to be on in Europe and, you know, 58 minute escalation in terms of the, uh, you um, you know, increased rate of server availability. And then that'll swipe across the Eastern seaboard and into North America across the West coast. We won't be up with full OTC service full time, uh, you know, until 10 o'clock this morning, except we have an ad campaign that Google says are uncancelable, you know, that we'll be releasing across our seven, eight, five and seven C zones by three o'clock. What are we going to do? Like I, whatever their language is, I want to, yeah. Speaking maybe not with that level of urgency and maybe that, that tone, that level of excitement, but I want to speak in the language that they talk to each other when their urgency goes up. And that yeah. to me says it's not about me. I'm in your world. I'm a peer to you. We're peers to each other. We work on the same kinds of problems and we belong together. And then the last thing, because I know I said the last thing I'll say, and then, then let you run with it. Like <laughs> celebrities don't date coffee baristas. Not that coffee baristas aren't beautiful and like walks on the beach and international travel and can write wonderful poetry and 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 haikus and are good photographers and are nice people that write and, and are, aren't beautiful. It's they don't share the same problems celebrities date each other because they're alcoholics and they're needy <laughs> and they are, um, uh, you know, they're, they're slaves to their Instagram, you know, feedback rate. And they're worried about aging and younger people taking their roles. And they, they, they share the same problem and the same language about the problems. Watch entourage. Like, I think there's so much, you know, to be learned from that of sort of insider Hollywood language, celebrities share the same problems. That's how they know they're right for, made for each other. They have the same pain. It's not, right, because every sales book could be like, you know, gap selling, you know, uh, uh, problem solution. I think what Tony's telling you, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, it's pain and pain. 
Well, it's pain. It's yeah. Look, it's certainly pain, pain and pleasure, right? But but if there is no serious problem, th there is no serious purchase order, right? So the so the size of the problem, the size of the opportunity, determines the level of commitment and priority and how much money they'll spend. Um, or and I look, I, I agree with you 100. And and just to really help people that are listening to this, there's actually a huge paradox here. Because what, what Aaron is saying, and he's right, is if you want to drive winning engagement to make someone a customer, you need to do an insane level of research, right? So you really need to earn this by showing them that you know them, have insights, have a point of view. And that stuff takes a lot of work. When you're building sales pipeline, you're driving outbound, you don't have the luxury of investing all of that time for every, every prospect. So I know it's a bit of a shameless plug, but in, in my new book, co-author with Justin Michael, Tech Powered Sales. What we've actually got in here is examples of how you can go and build buyer personas that have that languaging in there. So if you're running a campaign to a, to a CFO in retail uh, or a CEO in manufacturing, you think, okay, so how is this person measured in their role? What are the, what are the stresses and pressures they're under? What are the industry trends they're facing? What's my point of view about why change and why now? rather than just talking about why us, what, what are the common objections I'm likely to expect? Uh, what are the words and phrases and insider language that resonates with them? Uh, wh where are they influenced online and within their networks, typically in their organization? What are the trigger events that go on in their world that I can look for that create relevance and context when I reach out? So the whole idea of those buyer personas is how you can still drive a level of personalization at scale yeah, because because that's a big challenge today. Is everyone's automating with tech, right? But what they're doing is they're loading spam into their Gatling gun of automation, and all they're doing is alienating more people faster. They're failing faster, and they're failing in a way that's a lot more expensive. Well, well I think this is, and we were talking earlier, uh, and and I think yeah, this is really a another problem yeah, as we shift out of speaking one-on-one -on -one at the CEO level, I think we've covered that, you know, pretty uh, aggressively, but, you know, as we're shifting, yeah, how do you do this at scale? Well, the, the first thing before, how do you do it at scale? I think comes, don't do this at scale until you have the messaging right, because it's just automation gone wild. I have a friend, I mentioned to you, he called me up a week ago. He goes, oh my God, I spent $80,000 today. Because the advertising, it's got a big e-commerce company, right? He just got off the phone. He calls me, you know, in crisis. I just got off the phone yelling at my marketing department. Like, what, what, you guys, what are you doing? You know, don't, did you just go to lunch and stay out at lunch for four hours? Because the marketing that, that was working in the morning and they just let it run all day, right? But sometime around lunchtime, the response rates stopped working or somebody else was bidding higher for the keyword and they're at scale. They're at three, $400 million e-commerce company. So they spent $80,000 by the end of the day by not, but by just letting the marketing scale, right? Before they looked at it again. So it's, it's automation run wild. Sending out messaging at scale without having the messaging right first is, um, it, you know, you'll, you'll get some response rate because people will just, you know, click either by accident or they'll really have such an acute problem to take anybody who works in the industry or whatever, wh whatever the case is. But uh, the, the messaging that is about you is probably limiting your response rates by 5x. Yeah. Now, 
a lot of people say, okay, but how do I make the messaging about them? And I think that's what you're getting at. Every industry has its issues. Yeah. Right? Um, what, 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 just, just really quickly. One way I think about it is, um, if you've ever, well, not if you've ever, the last time you broke up with your girlfriend, right. That you can remember that, that, you know, when you were young, it's just incredibly painful. And you're like, Oh, what was me? Or, you know, your girlfriend or boyfriend. And you're just like, so torn up and I'm, how will I ever get over it? And everything like that. The reality is relationships only break up in seven ways, right? You have one of the seven ways to feel pain, but in those seven ways, psychologists have fixes for you to make you feel better and get you on a path of, you know, healthy emotional response. But, but I think in, in all these industries, the numbers are even smaller. You know, there's only three things they care about. And there's only two ways to talk about the things they care about. That is scalable, I believe, is where, you know, your material and your books go. Are we, you know, are we, we threading the right needle there in your mind? Yeah. Um, Oren, the really interesting thing is, is that at any given point of time for us as sellers, 3% of the market is typically actively looking for what we offer. And 40% of the market is actually open. So if we talk about us and what we do, we'll only appeal to the 3%. And that feels like a response rate. You're like, hey, I'm doing yeah. a good job. Yep. They say it's yeah. 2%, I'm getting 3%, yeah. woohoo! Like, look yeah. at me go, right? Well, well, and the thing is, just because 3% of the market is, is looking for what we do doesn't mean that all 3% would consider us if we tried to talk to them, right? Yeah. But the reality is, if we build a conversation narrative that's about them and their opportunity to drive improved results. Now we're appealing to the 43% and we're doing what everyone acknowledges strategic selling is. We're engaging early and we're really setting the agenda. Um, in, in tech powered sales, we actually provide the exact framework for building these conversations. And we provide the framework for how you inject personalization. Because what we need to do is create a baseline value prop or what I call a value narrative for buy industry specific buyer personas, and then you inject the personalization. The holy grail of tech as it's evolving this decade is how do you inject personalization into automation in a way that actually works and doesn't call damage. There's a concept called liquid syntax that we actually talk about. But um, hey, hey, um, Oren, I, I know we're out of time. Um, uh, yeah, so we're, we're, yeah. you're out of time. I have all yeah. day. I love this stuff. You know, you're busy. I'm not busy. I have nothing yeah. to do. No, uh, but t Tony, what, when you say we're out of time, you have four minutes. I, I do. I've got three and a half minutes. I've, I've got a big commitment for a giant client. <laughs> okay. All right. Forget about those guys for a minute. <laughs> let me, let me, let me hypnotize you, but give us a quick example of what that would actually look like, like a, a scalable personalization outreach without having to have a database. Cause I think everybody thinks like in order to do personalization, you have to have a database, which knows 17 variables, you know, that you can plug into your, your Salesforce Marketo sales stack. And it's, yeah. it provides the exact perfect messaging for that particular client based on their LinkedIn and Facebook data poll. I, that's not what you're saying. Uh, so, so, so give us an example of something that's scalable uh, and you have plenty of time. I mean, the amount of damage you can do in two and a half minutes is amazing. Okay. So, so, so the most powerful form of personalization that works is a common trusted relationship, a referral, but they're rare. 
the next most powerful is a trigger event. So imagine that you said my ideal customer profile is a tech company that's a scale up. You know, they've, you know, they're, they're doing a series A, B or C capital raise. Yeah. The reality is, is there's technology out there that can automatically monitor for, for, for capital raises. Sure. Right. So you think, well, I'm looking for clients that run this sort of tech in their stack and they've done a capital raise and then you use that as personalization. Hey, Mike, congratulations on the series B capital raise sure. and expanding into, into, into South America. Uh, hey, the reason for the call is I've actually got some ideas on how you can accelerate sales of the new Jabadoo product uh, and in a way that also improves margin. Do you mind if I ask? And then you ask them a question and, and, and you're off to the races. And if you can make the whole thing three sentences, not three paragraphs in both your emails and the way that you speak, uh, you know, you, you, you're respecting time. Leaders want us to be brief. They want us to get to the point. They're not lonely and bored looking for a new sales friend. Um, so, so when you think about injecting personalization, a trusted relationship or something that's happened in their world that creates awareness of need of what we do. So, for example, if someone's just started hiring a whole bunch of salespeople, right, you think, okay, so did the previous ones fail and they've replaced them or are they growing like crazy? They'll be thinking, man, it's expensive hiring these salespeople. Half of them will probably fail. How do we manage that risk, right? The thoughts in their mind. Don't talk about your sales training or your sales methodology, they're not interested in that. They just want more reps hitting quota and a predictable forecast. So talk about the outcome. And buddy, I've got to go. <laughs> oh, it's great. Hey guys, by the way, do not do not invite guests on. They know more about this than I do. It makes me look bad. But Oh, sorry, you're still here? <laughs> hey, look, uh, Tony, uh, where do people go if they want you to do this for them? Yeah, so I just really encourage you to buy... Tech power sales. Uh, the truth is, I'm a one man band. I have more clients than I can cope with. Um, but read Tech Powered Sales, connect with me in LinkedIn. Also, Justin Michael, he is an absolute genius when it comes to top funnel pipeline creation. You can find me online also at tonyhughes.com.au. Tonyhughes.com.au. And Oren, I've loved the conversation. I love your books and I, I, I love your philosophy on breaking through and engaging. Uh, into the C-suite and executives. Thanks, yeah, buddy. And, and, and any more promotion, I'm going to have to start charging you for running a commercial. So, <laughs> all right, Tony, you have a good time with your client. I will talk to you later. I look forward to the next one. Hey, so obviously I'm Warren Claff. This is the Dealmaker Podcast. Make sure to just subscribe to this. If you could see that whiteboard right there, I don't know if I can turn the camera. I can't reach the camera. Anyway, I'm not allowed to touch the camera, but if you could see that whiteboard right there that has the list of guests coming up that I'm going to be interviewing here on the Dealmaker podcast, like it's it's a messed up list of just amazing uh, uh, business development, sales, CEOs, but everybody who knows origination, right? Lead generation, tech stack, uh, technology, origination, pitch how to put something in front of people so they'll be enticed by it, hooked by it, excited by it, and close. Like, that's what we look for. Psychologists, executives, people who, technologists who really know the full stack sales cycle. So if you want to grow your revenue, I just feel like the guys we have coming up, uh, you know, from, from technology all the way through to negotiation are amazing. Subscribe here. I'll put those guys in front of you. You can decide if they're as great 
as I think they are. I'll see you here next week on the Dealmaker podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. And be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclaff.com slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.